So tonight's talk continues the commentary that I'm offering on different uh, holy writings, scriptures, we call them sutras in Sanskrit. And these are recordings <clears throat> made by various Buddhists over the millennia. And uh, some of these, some of the words are attributed directly to Buddha Shakyamuni, and some of them are attributed to other uh, sages and teachers in the Buddhist tradition. And so this uh, piece that I see, you know, I, I decided to use tonight is a very, very popular um, piece of literature. And give you a little bit of background about it uh, after I've, I've read it. So in Japanese, this is called the Enmei Jiku Kanon Yo. Kanzion, praise to Buddha. All are one with Buddha, all awake to Buddha. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, eternal, joyous, transcendent, clear. Through the day, Kanzion. Through the night, Kanzion. This moment springs from mind. This moment itself is mind. So this version, which is called the Ten Line Canon uh, Sutra, is actually uh, a shorter version that comes from Chapter 25 in the famous Lotus Sutra. And this version is the version that's used liturgically. As I've said many times in other places, the Buddhist tradition has always been a liturgical tradition. So that when observing, whether it be called puja, it be called liturgy, there was always the repetition of certain teachings and certain concepts so that those concepts could become part of you. And that's one of the beautiful things about liturgy is it allows it to become something that you no longer have to think about, and it's just part of you. So this sutra is praising this character, Kanzian. So tonight's um, a bit in depth. I thought I'd give you something a little deeper tonight. So as we go into this, uh, please see it broken into three categories. So I'm going to first talk about the sutra itself. I'm going to talk about the character of Kanzian and a little bit of the history there. And then I'm going to go into the meaning of archetypes. And then I'm going to talk about specifically how the archetype of Kanzian is understood in Buddhist tradition, particularly by our school. So the first thing to note about Kanon, or Kanzeon, and also known as Avalokiteshvara, uh, this is a, a Buddhist archetype, a Buddha or Bodhisattva archetype. And this character is, is very important. One of the interesting uh, aspects of this character is that ultimately, uh, it teaches us something about a popular topic these days, which is questions about gender and sexuality. The, the figure of Canon, Ava 
Kanzian, ultimately transcends all uh, ideas of gender or sex. And in fact, in some cases, Kanzian can appear as a male. In other cases, Kanzian will appear as female. And I would say probably the feminine or female version is probably the most popular. But ultimately what it's teaching us is that uh, all these constructions of the self uh, are essentially shunyata, or they are empty. They have no existence apart from everything else. And so I think that's a useful way to understand ourselves. And this uh, Buddha Bodhisattva uh, is a great way to meditate on that. So, but she's most, I'm using the pronoun she, she's most popular in Northern Asia as a feminine figure. And in fact, she is very similar to what you might see in some uh, Catholic churches uh, with the Madonna figure. Sometimes she is holding a child. And uh, a lot of this stuff predates Christianity, but it's, it's an ancient sort of archetype or theme. She also usually holds a willow branch in her hand. And other times she's pouring out some kind of nectar You'll see her statues everywhere. In fact, most of the time, if we go to a garden uh, place, they'll have statues of, of Kanzian. And most people don't know what, who she is, but basically often she'll be standing on a rock and there might be a dragon at her feet and then she has an elixir that she's offering. And that's the healing nectar of compassion and love. Her name means essentially she who hears the cries of the world. And hearing those cries, she's drawn out in compassion. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about her. But before we do that, I want to talk about this idea of archetype. <clears throat> That's how we define a character like this. But archetypes are not something that everybody is really that familiar with. So I thought I would start by sort of defining that. And as you know, one of the unique things about our tradition is that we use science as our knowledge base, as our mythos, if you will, to help us to understand how things work so that they might be in harmony with why they matter. So let me begin by describing an archetype. Some of these are from notes that I made. So an archetype is a primordial form arousing, arising from the ground nature of the universe. And it comes into the collective unconscious, sort of like data from our day gets into our dream states. And it's very similar from a scientific perspective to an axial system of a crystal. In the axial system of a crystal, um, there is a, uh, a mother liquid, so to speak, which form is a preform of what the actual crystalline structure will become. So an archetype and an actual structure is this, this mother liquid, they call it, which has no material existence of its own. And it first appears according to the specific ways within the ions and the molecules sort of aggregate and stick together. So archetypes exist in nature and, and they're very important. Unfortunately, a lot of people aren't familiar with them. Um, you can also talk about uh, 
archetypes with regard to the theory of mathematics, where math is something that is real, that is actually uh, built in to the universe. And we experience that through the emergence of geometric forms. And then a sentient being describes those forms using mathematical formulas. Once again, that, 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 that essence of that primordial form is also sometimes used to talk about uh, with mathematics. Archetypes are inherited potentials which are actualized when they enter into the consciousness. And they enter into our consciousness as images, and then they manifest in behavior when we're interacting with the outside world. And they are inherently shunya, as I was saying earlier about the character of Kanzian, empty, which means they have no inherent existence of their own. And they're made up of space, mostly of space. Um, the archetype itself, uh, being empty and uh, purely formal, um, can be a sort of a reputation of a given a priori, which means a reasoning or knowledge which proceeds from theoretical deduction rather than observation or experience. And some of those fields of that kind of manifestation of an archetype, uh, as I said before, is matter, mathematics, reason, and tautology. Tautology being essentially we use two different words to describe the same thing. The representations themselves are not inherited, only the forms. And in that respect, they correspond to what we might call instincts. So a lot of people, when they are talking about the archetypes, think of instincts. And they're organizing not only ideas in the psyche, but also the fundamental principles of matter and energy in the so-called physical world. For example, DNA is the replicable, replicable archetype of our species. We can draw upon uh, also the electromagnetic spectrum with, you know, uh, simply put that the further light moves away from perspective, uh, it turns red, and the closer it is in perspective, it turns blue. And you can then look at consciousness in a similar way, where there is the unconscious, which would be in the farther red part of that spectrum. And then there is self-consciousness, which is somewhere in the middle. And then there is universal consciousness, which would be in the blue spectrum. So there's another parallel there that we can draw. And we can propose these archetypes as proto-thoughts, which exist even in animals. And the way that we usually talk about that is when we look at the human as an evolutionary creature that shares its uh, life with all other living beings, um, physiologically, then what we see is the, what we call the reptilian brain, that that would be the area where the archetypes would first emerge into instinct. And you could also argue that infants, as all humans evolved in that infant stage, we're much more functioning from the archetypes as instincts. They become more sophisticated as we grow and become more self-aware. And because of the connection to sensory data, uh, proto-thoughts are concrete and self-contained. In a sense, they're thoughts in themselves, but they're not yet capable of symbolic representations or object relations 
the way it would be with the self-conscious sentient. So the thoughts then kind of function as preconceptions, predisposing psychosomatic entities to similar archetypes. Now I know this is pretty heavy stuff, but just be patient and stay with me. Because what we're in essence saying is that these archetypes are the universal organizing themes of all life in the universe. And these patterns that appear, regardless of space, time, or person, appear in all existential realms and at all levels of systematic recursion. They are organized as themes, we might say, in oneness. And we can describe them as the potential world outside time and space. So we could talk about the archetypes as being something that exists outside time and space but that they are detectable through synchronicities as they emerge into consciousness. And um, these archetypes, from our school's point of view, emerge out of the three principles or archetypes of oneness. Because another way of talking about an archetype is a principle. And, and you know, the, the Latin for oneness is unus and unus. And it means that everything emerges from this common ground, but becomes more sophisticated and complicated as sentient beings begin to communicate. So I hope that was a pretty good, thorough <laughs> description of archetypes. Uh, if you have questions about that, you can always email me and I'll try to clarify anything that wasn't clear. But I wanted to help people understand that architects are not simply a, a, a literary device and they're not something that belongs just in some forms of analytical psychology. What we're talking about here is something that a lot of different fields of endeavor from physics to biology um, are actually saying is how things are. Now, when we talk about how things came to be, this is where we get into the realm of archetypes. And I know it might seem, how in the world is this related to Kenzion? But just, just trust me, it's very important. Because once I get to that part, with this preface, it'll be hopefully, ah, again. So what, what I want to do first, because we use science as sort of our language around these things, is that I want to talk about the scientific uh, models that we can use to describe the origin of life because the actual archetype of Kanzian has to do with the origin of life and in many ways you could say the reason or the purpose for the universe. So in order for us to do this I want to first talk about how life originates. So I'm going to give you a few people, and I'm going to give you a few uh, brief sort of outlines. The first is Jacques Monod. So Jacques Monod was important because he was talking about the idea of how chance and, um, you might say, instinct or random and intention or unconscious and self-conscious come together and create a necessity. Now, when you use the word necessity in a scientific meaning, it means inevitable. So we often think of necessity as some kind of means to an end. 
But in this case, necessity from a scientific point of view, especially with Manadi's using it, is it means it's inevitable. It's built in. It's inevitable. And if you talk about this at a very basic level, you're talking about macromolecules, which are a thousand or more atoms that are uh, capable of replicating. These replications lead to the formation around these repeatable atoms of a teleonomic apparatus. And that leads to cellular, cellular systems. Now, what I mean by a teleonomic apparatus is I mean that within the thing itself is the inevitable. So it is actually, there's, it is uncreated in a sense because everything that it is, is inevitable and is within it. And this is just talking about the establishment of the basic building blocks of life. You know, carbon compounds like methane, water, ammonia, and these form together and these formations um, of nucleotides and amino acids, um, particularly like albumin and things like that, they combine into a cell and these prebiotic primordial, this prebiotic primordial goo, from say soup or goo, I like the word goo because that's an old Sanskrit term which refers to uh, darkness, like we might use uh, in dark matter, uh, dark energy, or it can mean earth. And, and so goo, and, and the, the root of goo is where we get a lot of our terms that mean human, like the word man or manu in Sanskrit. Interestingly, a little side note, the, the Sanskrit term guru, guru. So gu, as I said, means that fertileness, and ru can mean light, or it can mean that which brings something out of the earth that which brings something to spring into being, like a plant. That's, that's kind of cool. Uh, and so we, we know this is how, you know, this sort of replicating system occurs with, uh, you know, cellular system. And then there were two scientists, they were Boland and Erickson, and they were able to produce amino acids in a laboratory setting by irradiating what are four basic kinds or elements in the universe. So again, what these two things are showing us is that there's a commonality throughout the entire universe and that there's a, there's a sort of a self-replicating process that's going on. And then uh, as we were trying to understand this in a deep, more deeply scientific way, one of the discoveries we did was uh, we found a glass, a gas cloud called B2 in the, the constellation of Sagittarius. And that, that cloud contained all the prerequisites for life. Um, like the most complicated chemical compound, which is cyanoazathylene. So these discoveries show us that, that life is, the building blocks of the essence of life is everywhere in the universe. And so it, it helps us to kind of get that understanding or perspective of oneness from a scientific point of view. Further, these molecules like hydrogen, carbon monoxide, ammonia, hydrocyanide, formaldehyde, formica acid, and all kinds of series of carbohydrates in the universe and amino acids have even been found in meteorites. And interestingly, 
um, when the Apollo missions were out and they came back with moon rocks, these moon rocks uh, also had um, two of the main protein building amino acids in them, glycine and alanine. And it's just, you know, that might sound kind of humdrum to you, but it's pretty amazing because it shows us that the basic essence that builds life in this universe is everywhere. And we can know further from that, that because of this, it's probably going to be widely varied in a lot of ways, but in some ways it won't. So a lot of the things that we know about sentiency or we know about animal life, it really wouldn't be that much different, in my opinion. And in fact, you know, I think it's quite probable that there are other life forms and other galaxies in the universe. And I would hedge my bets that if they reach a certain level of sentiency, they're going to be a lot like us. I think Star Trek was right. <laughs> and I'm not the only person, person thinking that. Now, the other thing that's interesting about understanding all these processes, and again, I hope you'll forgive me for getting into some of the science stuff tonight, but I think it's important, is that we also know that there is a certain way that we can, we can know how long the universe, at least this universe, has been around. And there's a fellow by the name of Christian Doppler, and some of you may have heard of the Doppler, and most of the time you hear it with weather, stuff like that. Originally, a Doppler was about sound, and it was a way of measuring sound based on perspective, whether the sound was closer to you or not. So when it's farther away, it makes a certain kind of sounds get closer, it gets louder, and then it goes this way. That was the Doppler effect. And then that was sort of worked out in a way to talk about not just sound waves, but to talk about light waves, which I mentioned briefly there when I was talking about the light um, spectrum. But what's interesting about this is that the, this Doppler effect uh, can tell us the velocity of stars. And what's interesting is it also helps us to know that all the stars in the universe and all the galaxies have the same chemical consistencies. I think that's wild. And you, you even get a tiny little glimpse of how big this place is. It's pretty wild. But again, it reaffirms our teaching of oneness. And then, of course, uh, Edwin Hubble um, was able to then calculate movements based on light spectrum to give us an age of the universe. And it also shows us that the universe is expanding. And the simple image of this is like a, a balloon, but you put red dots on it, right? And as you inflate that balloon, the dots separate from each other. But you can measure the distance, and that's kind of how we got... Uh, how old our universe is, which is somewhere around 14 billion years old, to the best of our estimation, based on this kind of data, and also research into background radiation, which may have come from our next entry, which is uh, Georges Lemaitre. Um, his idea of everything that was compressed into one point of singularity. So what he was saying is that this, uh, be, there was a beginning to this universe, and that everything, everything in the universe, all, all energy, all sorts of things were formed into one singular point. And then, uh, and, and a guy named George Gernal, um, I think it was Gamal, um, he called it the Big Bang. 
And so now this is the working theory that we have about the universe, the Big Bang. So what is that all saying? It's saying to us that we know these things from our knowledge base, our technology and science, that we know that everything in the universe, all the building blocks of life are there everywhere. And that these are all the same. They're the same for us as they are in the farthest galaxy away. And likewise, we also happen to be able to measure the life span of the universe so far. So we know that it had an origin point. And again, I'll get back to why this is going to be important for Kanziano. So that's that aspect. From here, we move into a scientific theory called scientific pandeism. Now, this is interesting. Scientific pandeism is a theory that before the Big Bang, because that's the question, like, okay, there's the Big Bang, but what happened before it? And so scientific pandeism postulates the theory that before the Big Bang, there was a neutron consciousness, some form of consciousness that existed before the Big Bang, and then self-destructed. And that self-destruction, its bits, became the universe. Now this is not an unfamiliar model to us because we also know that when we talk about just the basic atomic elements in, the, in all of our bodies, we can, talk, we can relate those to stars that billions of years ago went supernova, spilling their bits out into the universe and they helped to form us. That cosmic oneness again. So this is a scientific theory in saying that this is how things happen and that, uh, that it's reasonable from this theory that this consciousness is currently reassembling itself through the continued formation of a collective consciousness or intelligence in the form of sentient beings, and in our case, the human race. And the innate drive for such cosmic reassembly explains why it is so natural for life forms to need connection. Which on, you know, from a mammalian point of view, like my cat, Basil, I mean, he loves that sense of contact. He needs that connection. Humans do the same, but it gets even more complicated with us. So all that's important to know is that what I'm going to share with you next about the meaning of Kanzian that comes out of the Buddhist mythos is very much the same in many ways than what we know from the scientific world. And I think that's important because, as you know, Part of my effort is to help us to reunite how things work and why they matter and bring them together. So now, let me explain what this sutra is. Why is it praising Kanzian? So this is what you might call panentheism. A lot of people are familiar with the word pantheism. But this word, uh, which comes from a, a, a German theologian, Pannenberg, it means panentheism. What does that mean? It means that this ground consciousness, this primordial ground nature of the universe, is not only within the universe, but in a sense, too, is transcendent. 
goes to both ends. Uh, and that's what makes it different from pantheism or from theism. So what does this mean? So what we're saying is, for lack of a better word, we're going to talk about it as the eternal. So when I use the word eternal, I mean that it's not conditioned by time and space. And the eternal manifests as personified archetypes. The eternal manifests that which is outside time and space is personified as archetypes. And so the, the main, uh, two of the main archetypes that you find in the Buddhist tradition are the archetypes of Amida that we chant the Nibutsu, the Amo Amida Butsu, and also Kanzeon. And Amida generally translates, there are formations of words in uh, two forms. Amida, it means infinite light and life. So that's what we associate with the beginning, light. And that brings forth life. And so Amida is the personified archetype of that natural, real thing. Likewise, Kanzeon is the personification of infinite compassion. Now here's where it gets unique. Here's where the Buddhist concept is very similar, but yet there's a little bit of a difference, which is really important. So here's how you might say it. In the beginning was, was the Dharma, or Kanzeon, because Kanzeon represents the energy of compassion. And compassion is the energy of the Dharma. So in the beginning was the Dharma slash Kanzeon. And the Dharma slash Kanzeon was one with the Buddha, Amida, and was Buddha. So there's a sense that Amida represents the infinite light and life that comes forth in the universe and sustains it. And Kanzion represents the action of compassion that emerges from that. All things come forth from Kanzion, and nothing exists outside Kanzion. So in our mythos, Amida and Kanzion represent the ground being of the universe and also the ground of becoming. And here's the thing. The nature of the universe, then, we understand it as creative. So remember before where I was saying about uh, how in science they talk about necessity as an inevitability? So here's the thing. In this version, the Buddhist version, the nature of the universe is creative, and Kanzion of great compassion empties out as the universe. So in a sense, she is that which is blown out into bits. And all those bits form everything in the universe. And in order for her to be able to reassemble herself, and why does she do this? She does this because she hears the cries of beings suffering before they have been born. So before the foundation of the universe, she hears what will happen through the process, the inevitable process of conscious evolution 
and she hears that suffering will be there. And so she, this is her response to this, this self-emptying, this kenosis of giving herself. And then Amida, in the mythos, in the mythic language, gives her thousands of arms and multiple heads. And so basically what it's saying is that skillful means, there'll be all these limitless skillful means which will allow all the suffering beings to experience awakening and be freed from suffering. And this is done through the action of wisdom and compassion. And then the idea is, is that as Kanzion split, right, and all these and all these myriad forms, which are us, and everything in the universe, Ami does through the great vow, the Bodhisattva's vow, puts her back together as an infinite cosmic community. And as we say, the one body of the Buddha. So what we're saying here is that the nature of the universe is creativity, which is change. And creativity is the nature of reality, the, the necessary or inevitable nature of reality. And this creative expression is sometimes painful and sometimes pleasurable. The intention is to overcome separation. So discernment is a positive form. Uh, so what I was saying here to overcome separation, so that when we talk about separation, we understand the separation can take two forms. One form of separation is that which leads to suffering. The other is an initial form of consciousness that we call discernment. And in discernment, that's kind of what you might say a positive or light aspect of separation, which allows for the expression of the many or diversity. Basil's joining. And the idea of it is that the many from the many come the one, e pluribus unum. But the separation which causes suffering, the compassionate action of restoring oneness, which is another word for interdependence, and therefore questions, and here's what's really important, therefore questions that we normally struggle with about good and evil, um, uh, sorrow and happiness. The thing that's so important is, is this helps us to understand that because of the way the universe is, the answers to those questions don't lie outside of us. In most myths, it's about it's the gods and the human. And the gods are the ones that have all the answers. And the gods are the ones that create sorrow and happiness for us. What this model does, much like the, the scientific pandeism, is it shows us that it's within us. It lies not with the gods, but is available within every sentient being. And that we're responsible for our own happiness. And simultaneously, we are unique and essential expressions of the cosmos. So I know that that might seem like a lot to digest and take in, but I think it's really important. And I don't think if you, if I had just told you the first, the, the second or third part, it wouldn't have really, I don't think, made such an impact. So what we're saying here is that these Buddhist mythos, this Buddhist concept that everything is based on, is something that has parallels directly in our best bet, which is knowledge based on what we call science. 
And I think that's fantastic. And it, it, and it clears up a lot of things. Because if the ground consciousness is something that uh, had to experience that kind of thing as a response to the suffering that it knew would be there, and that the whole thing's inevitable, so there's no question of why it began or where it's going. We know. It's inevitable. It's a scientific necessity. It's just what happens. It's just the nature of the universe. It just is. And then it emerges out of space. Shunyam. But, but that it's not just some mindless process. And that's what the the meaning of the passage is when it says, you know, basically uh, when we're talking about the sutra. So let me just go back to that for one second um, because I think that'll kind of bring it home. Whenever we're talking about the sutra itself, what's being expressed there is that all are one with Buddha, that's simple enough. All awake to Buddha, that's the inevitability. That's the destiny of all life. And that is this nirvana, this experience of this oneness has the characteristics of being eternal, which means it's not defined and limited by space and time dimensions. It's joyous, so it's always an interconnected sense. And it's transcendent, so that it's not stuck in anything. It always has spaciousness from which to understand things. And it's clear. And it says, through the day, Kanzian, through the night, Kanzian. Well, essentially, it's saying that this working of the Bodhisattva's vow through the personification of Kanzian has always happened. Always happened. And that that's the process of, of, of cosmic individuation. Another word for that is karma. And then it finishes by saying, this moment springs from mind. And usually that's translated as a capital, mind, and. So the thoughts of Kanzian come from my mind. But my mind is the mind of Buddha. So it shows us an interesting sort of paradox there that what we are experiencing as human beings on a certain level as mind, I'm having thoughts of Kanzian. So everything I told you tonight, I'm having thoughts about that, that those very thoughts have their source in the ground nature. So when someone asks you what's the meaning of the universe, our answer is wise compassion. And when someone asks you where's everything going to end up, Uh, like I said, it's a deep subject, and I'm sure some of you may have questions, so please feel free to uh, contact me and ask them. I'll do my best to clear them up.